Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of TBD with Dan and Bill. How you doing? Today we're talking about the William Gibson short story that is one of the early voices in cyberpunk that is called Johnny Mnemonic. And spoiler alert, this has nothing to do with the movie aside from the name. So if you keep listening and you want to watch the movie, go for it, but it's not very good. I guess that's my spoiler alert. So the story was originally published in Omni Magazine back in May of 1981. Like I said, in the early days of cyberpunk. Dark and distant past for us. 40 years. So what's it about, Dan? Well, what it's about, essentially, is you've got this, uh, the main character who is called Johnny. Not really sure where mnemonic came from. It probably sounded pretty cool and it had something to do with memory. That is exactly it. A mnemonic is a memory device or an aid to memory. So Johnny in the story is a cybernetically enhanced person who can basically carry data around in his head, whether it's some kind of thumb drive or it writes things into his cortex. We don't really know, but um, he has the ability for people to upload data into his head. He carries it around like a high-tech digital courier or a walking dark web. And uh, as the story opens, he has gotten someone to upload data and they are not willing to pay to have the job completed. He ends up tracking down this guy. He ends up getting in a big sort of gun and run scene with another cybernetically enhanced person by the name of Molly Millions. They kind of trek through the cyberpunk landscape. I don't want to say dystopian, but... I guess it's a form of dystopia. And uh, eventually they meet up with a yet another cybernetically enhanced organism, in this case a dolphin who can get the data out of Johnny's head. And they end up with a climactic Hollywood scene on this very odd place called the Killing Floor, which is sort of like half trampoline, half dance club. It's kind of hard to describe. I like that, half trampoline, half dance floor where Molly and uh, the assassin that's chasing them end up with a, you know, the culminating battle where she somehow tricks him into killing himself. He, he falls, all, falls down to the floor of the pit or the dome that they're in, and they all live happily ever after, or as happy as people get in this type of society. So you've listed the characters, the, the principal ones here, Johnny the Courier, Molly Millions, one of the you know, cybernetically enhanced bodyguards. Ralphie Face is the only character that you haven't necessarily mentioned yet that's, uh, he's something of a broker. Yeah, he's like the criminal kingpin. He's the guy that put the data in Johnny's head in the first place. He's the guy that owes him money. So he's a guy who just, he deals in stuff, whatever it might mean, whether it's, whether it's circuitry or other kinds of technology or information or drugs or whatever. Quasi-legal. And he, of course, has his own bodyguard, Lewis, a guy who is augmented with lab-grown muscle. So there's all kinds of different augmentations that are in here. The one guy that we uh, kind of mentioned in passing here, the, the Yakuza assassin. Yeah, he's more of a plot device than a, than a character, I would think. Yeah, he drives the action. But of course, he's important because he's from the Yakuza. And of course, in you know early 80s and 90s, you know, cyberpunk fiction, the Yakuza seems to always be in the background somewhere. 
Well, and and that's where I was actually going with this is that so the characters represent individual motives and represent individual personalities certainly, but then cyberpunk and and this is a, a, a fair representation of it as far as this goes. It always has characters. Well, not not so much characters as presences that lie beyond and that drive action. And in this particular case, it's corporate kind of presences. So the Yakuza is organized crime that comes out of Japan. Why is it Japan? Because the major corporations in the world that drive a lot of the political as well as the economic action are uh, companies that centered or that, that originated from Japan. And so it's a, you used the word dystopia before. It's a, it's a socioeconomic it's a very specific kind of dystopia. Cyberpunk usually has its general themes of of technology has led us down a bad path. Yeah. Right. Everybody's sort of in this dog-eat-dog mentality. It's a world of, of hyper-stimulation, sensory overload. It's a world where you've got these shadowy corporations in the background running everything and you just get this sort of this sort of impression everything's gone off the rails society wise and people are just trying to get by as best they can yeah and what's interesting about the authors gibson among them um bruce sterling is another is that they are authors who were influenced by the literary movement of the late 60s and early 70s it was sort of a new wave of, of science fiction that was grittier and more interested in sort of countercultural politics. So people like Harlan Ellison, you know, he, he would have been a good representation of that. J.G. Um, Ballard. So people who were, were moving away from what we saw as that sort of golden age. The golden classic age science fiction where, you know, even if it's not stated in a lot of these older stories, the assumption is that technology is helping us out as a society. Even if we take all this stuff out into this into the galaxy and we do bad things, hey, at least the technology got us out into the galaxy, so something good came of it. Well, and it believes in the inherent good of human beings and in the inherent good of human society and that we are worth celebrating and worth saving. Yeah, and we're all going to band together, and if we're going to fight anything, it's probably going to be the aliens, because we've achieved, you know, maybe not utopia, but we've achieved, you know, some type of society where you know, Star Trek society or any of the the things in the 70s, like Battlestar Galactica or whatever, it's, it's all these people working together for a common goal. And so there's a sense in which cyberpunk and its authors are trying to craft an alternative to that. Um, sort of a this is not your dad's science fiction kind of movement, and and it plays out in the stories in a variety of ways. But but in a word, they're gritty, they're dark. Yeah, and I mean it's not like the story's got a moral to it. You know, this the story seems to generally be like a lot of these stories. It's just a way to display a description of what this society is like. Right. I mean, no one in this no one in this entire story is doing anything good. With any of this technology, you've got people who are, you know, these quasi-legal hardware dealers. You've got these corporate uh, assassins. You've got corporate espionage. You've got, you know, people blackmailing each other. You've got all this stuff. And, and nowhere do we have any of the technology being used for any type of common good. No, and despite the fact that the technology is ubiquitous, it's also at the same time kind of 
background or kind of um, atmospheric, so to speak. There's so much technology that it's almost as if... Yeah, it's just assumed that it's Yeah, there. I mean, so Johnny Johnny's only augmentation that we know of at the beginning is that he has a data port in the base of his skull and it allows him to carry information, data around that uh, other people put there. He has no access to it himself. But then you look around at the, at the things that other people have spent money on. Ralphie the face, or Ralphie face, has spent money on his physical appearance. He has spent money on, on his bodyguards, actually. You know, he, he buys people who will protect him. Bioengineered people. Right. And you've got Molly, who's got the razor blades, retractable razor blades in her fingers, and apparently, you know, enhanced reflexes and all these other things. And, and it almost seems to some degree like the people who have at least, you know, some type of wealth are investing it in this technology and it's an arms race. You know, whoever's got the best tech are the people who are on top and the people who can't afford this stuff become, you know, they're referred to later in the story as low techs and they don't really get these cybernetic enhancements, but they still do all this tattooing and uh, no, sharpening their teeth or all these things that aren't strictly, you know, these these surgical tech enhancements, but some other way, some low way of of displaying their individuality. What you're talking about there with the technology is is really where I was going with that, which is that it's it's everywhere, and so it it just becomes part of the atmosphere of cyberpunk, and the stakes are not really about the technology, who has it, who doesn't, so much as just having a stake in something, you know, people are, are carving out in mercenary fashion some little piece of the world for themselves, whether that means a bad apartment or a place in the rafters or, um, you know, they've got a couple of friends. You know, the family that you choose is the cliche in cyberpunk that that's more important than the family that you're born into. And it's really the quality of life that you make of it with the understanding that nobody has any real quality of life. So whatever you're kind of hard scrabble claiming for yourself... That's where it's at. And and it's all of the power brokers, yeah, they've got money, but the money comes from control of information more than anything else. And corporate espionage is the sort of game of the day. And people are either directly implicated in it, on the periphery of it, or in some way, shape, or form impacted by the sort of backwash of it all. Yeah, because I, I think part of the... Um... I think part of the point of this whole cyberpunk literature is the the people who are, like you said, the, the anti-establishment countercultural people, they're using the same tools and the same technologies as the people that are controlling the society, right? I mean, like I said, they control society through information and technology and all these, you know, sort of anti-heroes co-opt all that technology to kind of rise up against them and and do their own thing and, and break free of the entire corporate machine to do what they want to do. It's a bleak kind of existence. And yet at the same time, like this is one of those stories that has a bit of that Hollywood thing at the end where Jones, the cybernetically enhanced dolphin that the military created to be able to sniff out stuff um, like electronics and to be able to break down other people's electronic barriers. He's a he's a cryptographer basically, yeah. right? He's a he's a, a safe the modern day safe cracker. He can look in Johnny's head, figure out what the data is even though Johnny himself can't. 
Right. Yeah. It, safe cracker is an excellent, an excellent metaphor for it. So he's like, yeah, he's a he's a cybernetically enhanced digital safe cracker. You know, so the dolphin, Molly Millions, you know, this physically augmented warrior kind of character, and Johnny the data courier, they form a little co-op at the end, and they use Jones's ability to sniff out all the information, the residuals of the information that Johnny has carried throughout his career as a courier. And they're going to take that information and they're going to begin selling it on the open market to people or threatening to sell it on the open market and make themselves rich as a result. Like like I said before, blackmail, which is apparently the best thing you can aspire to in this society if you want to carve that niche out for yourself. So nobody's got the... The ending that you expect, and yet it is the happy ending, where our three sort of heroes wander off into the sunset, and they've made a place for themselves, and everybody's happy. Well, let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about cyberpunk itself and its the cultural impact of it. And where it came from, where it went, where it is today. Yeah, and and you know we, we've established that it's it's gritty and dark and dystopian and, and and trying to be something other than what classic science fiction has been, but in terms of like the actual expression of it, you think along the lines of the opening scenes. Well, not just the opening scenes, but the you know the the setting for something like Blade Runner, which is built off of a piece of of early cyberpunk or at least one of the pieces that influenced early cyberpunk. You know, where it's raining and there's a lot of neon and it's really dark and, you know, people are just sort of moving through life, heads down, crazy styles of dress and appearance and so on. Well, and the literary stuff follows in that. There's a there's a bit of a, like I, you've described it, Dan, as, as sensory overload before. It's hyper-stimulation, right? And if you read how at least Gibson does these stories, if you read this one and, you know, say Burning Chrome, it's just a fast-paced story where he throws all sorts of things at you, some familiar, some not familiar, but it just keeps going and going and going, right? It's not like he pauses to let the reader catch up. It's just on to the next, you know, strange feature of the society and, and what all this technology and, and cybernetic augmentation has wrought. And so everything is done in chrome and in plastic or vinyl, you know, and and it's it's sort of a a techno turn, a tech noir turn. Dark and gritty, but yet it's also like bright and overstimulated. So it's kind of a odd juxtaposition. Yeah. You know, they and they they do talk about, you know, how it's it's also done some so, social stratification, right? You've got this place called Night Town where it's like the slum of the future. But even the slum of the future has all these tech elements in it. Right. And that sort of tech noir slum kind of thing isn't below ground, although they refer to it as the underground. It's actually above ground in the underside of a geodesic dome that is above the, the city. Apparently, if you're rich, you can live on the floor of the zone or the floor of the dome. But if you're poor, you live somehow suspended in the rafters somewhere like like rats yeah they've they've literally cut handholds into the rafters and and suspend things um whether that means platforms or trampolines like the killing floor or whatever the case may be just places you know it's sort of like los angeles and you see people living under the overpasses 
because they are homeless and disenfranchised. Well, it's very much like that, except that they're living in the underside of the protective dome or what once was a protective dome for the city. And I think as we mentioned before, right, we have this distinction between the, the low techs, which live in this sort of night town slum area, and the people that have the, the technological modifications in the first place. And what's, what's kind of interesting about cyberpunk as opposed to some of the, the, the stories that preceded the cyberpunk era where we talk about basically cyborgs, right? The cyber part of cyberpunk. You've got most of the time the stories deal with with this technology being applied not to like everyone in the society, but just single individuals. You know, if you look at, at like uh, Martin Caden, who wrote the novel Cyborg, which became the six million dollar man. You know, it's not that everybody has access to this technology. It's only very highly trained operatives that get it. You know, the same thing in like the Forever Man or, or Man Plus. It's usually one person or a very small group of people that have access to any of this technology. And, and cyberpunk takes it in a very different direction where, first of all, everybody seems to have access to it. But also you get the impression that, that how they select and how they, you know, graph this technology onto themselves kind of starts to dictate their place in society or what they do. Yeah, because you've got people who are buying it at the equivalent of, say, you know, a, a cyberpunk era Macy's or some other sort of upscale department store kind of thing. You've got people buying it from the equivalent of Kmart or Sears, which no offense, but they are they are not Macy's as far as that goes in terms of their supposed place in society. And you have still others who are, you know, they've got mobile labs in the trunk of a car or something, the equivalent of it, you know, where they are, they're dealing with stuff that's, that's not so much on the above board market, but, uh, you know, just people who are, who are working it as they can. But yeah, so you sort of got the, like, you know, you want to be a data courier, you get an implant like Johnny does. You want to be a, a bodyguard, you get some implants like Molly does. And you know the assumption being that you know whatever whatever job or occupation you have in the society, you get the the cybernetic enhancement that goes with it. And kind of like I mentioned before, it's this dog eat dog arms race kind of a world where if you don't keep up with the technology, you know right now it's we have you know the, the technology arms race, but we sit in front of our screens and type into it. Right, this is the technology that's incorporated into your being that you have to upgrade if you want to stay relevant. Right, and so the technologies that you choose become an extension of your personal style and ultimately of your personality. You know, the the way that you choose to interact with the information economy or whatever fringe element of it that you are part of, or I suppose, I mean, not everybody's on the fringe, it's just that the characters that are that are the protagonists of, of a story like Johnny Mnemonic are the ones on the fringe. But certainly there are people who represent the core or the center of that society as well. Yeah, we don't ever really hear about anybody like that. Um, I mean, you hear about like Chrome and Burning Chrome, who, although although that character is a is a pretty heavy hitter in society, they're still a criminal, right? You never really hear about the people who run the mega corporations. You never hear about the people that run the political systems very much in these stories or what their augmentations are, if they have them. Maybe it's a society where the higher up you are, you don't need augmentation, right? It's actually what I was going to say is that, that that's one of the things, I, I can't remember which story it is offhand now, but um, one of the upper level, upper social elite, so to speak, characters, or one of the power brokers is notable for having no cybernetic enhancements. 
but that person pays for other people to get cybernetic enhancements. Well, yeah, it's almost like nowadays that it's like cell phones, you know. I have one, you have one, everybody's got one, and we're all, in theory, are, you know, someone can call us anytime, day or night. But if you're rich, you got a secretary or you got an assistant or somebody you got to go through. You can't just call rich people directly. They've got layers of people they go through. And if they have a cell phone, nobody knows what that number is. Right. And the people who have cell phones distinguish themselves through what? Through buying skins for them, through buying cases that are pretty or gnarly or rugged or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And if you think well, we haven't really talked much. One of the one of the out of place, you know, kind of dated elements of this story is the fact that there is no personal communication devices anywhere in this story. You've got communications as the lifeblood of the information economy here, but but somehow they have failed to invent any type of personal communications technology. I mean, if you look at our society, which you know arguably is is going in quite a parallel to what cyberpunk describes with the social stratification and the negative uses of technology, you know, probably the first thing that's ever going to get augmented into people is the technology of our cell phones. Yeah, the only communication technology, ironically, that we see mention of very often in cyberpunk stories is the net, um, and, and that's primarily through computer interface. So it makes sense. I mean, you, you look far enough back, you know, the, the World Wide Web was not yet a thing. Um, DARPAnet, which is the military precursor to it, the backbone that the internet was or well, one of the backbones that the internet was built upon. Certainly that existed, but it wasn't the kind of thing that, that people like you and me had access to. And, and so, you know, but if you know email is beginning to become a thing, well, gosh, I guess it makes sense that, that people are going to be, you know, focused on their computers and the thought of a, a telephone becoming your personal computer hadn't yet become a connection that people were making. Yeah, I think in Burning Chrome, there's a section where he's like, I went to 14 payphones and did something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you're like, wow. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, this this is 1981. And at that point in time, you know, the word punk still actually meant something. You know, if, if you think of where punk even came from, it used to stand for, you know, things that were inferior or things that were undesirable. It came from I think it even goes back to like the 1890s where you have these terms like punked wood in sailing ships that's rotten and and you want to get rid of it. And then, you know, this, of course, creeps into society where it applies to people and you get the late 60s and and 70s where you get the punk movement, you know, in in Europe and to some degree in the U.S. where you see all these countercultural anti-establishment elements which I think is how, you know, Gibson picked that up as the, the, the suffix to denote this type of society. He's like, it's cyber, but it includes all these sort of, you know, in-your-face, confrontational elements of the punk movement at the time. Yeah, punk is someone who was an outcast, a ruffian, a thug, you know, the kind of person that nobody really wants to be. So punk as a movement is the reclamation of that, as we see every once in a while where a negative term you know, gets embraced by a group of people. Yeah, I'm proud of being on the dregs or on the outside, on on the periphery. And so that's the thing. That's that's why countercultural movements are called countercultural movements because they begin from the periphery. And with punk, you know, punk started off as a as a musical movement that was meant to not sound like other people's music. So there was a poster, for example, that's celebrated as one of the early expressions of punk where it was, uh, um, you know, the finger configurations for three chords, 
and the poster was supposed to say, here's three chords, go start a band. You know, the idea being that you don't really need to know anything about music, you just need to make noise, and you need to do so with a certain kind of attitude. Yeah, and a certain kind of look. An interesting exploration of, of punk as a movement, and ultimately the dissolution of punk, or the... Or the, the Co-opting of punk. Yes, that's the better word. The mainstreaming of punk. Um, Dick Hebdige, in, a, in a, a, a critical work from the early 90s, I believe, Punk the Subculture of Style, talks about how people who were not punk looked at punk and saw, hey, this is a movement that's got some cool attitude. I, I could be a rebel. And you know, instead of seeing it as an attitude, they saw it as a commercial venture. You know, So you began to see earrings being sold. Everyone is a punk. No one is a punk. Exactly. <laughs> and didn't like somebody declare that cyberpunk was like dead before most people even knew it existed? Yeah, Bruce Sterling, and I can't remember the other guy because it's not someone that I've read many of his stories. Uh, but but yeah, they they started a magazine, and it was meant to be an expression of punk is here, punk is loud, punk is 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 here to stay, kind of thing, or cyberpunk, I should say. Um, but they only lasted about 18 months, and by the time they shut the magazine down, that's when they declared that, yeah, cyberpunk was already dead, and the rest of the world was kind of just figuring out that it exists. Yeah, and, and cyberpunk is probably the first and last genre that actually probably used the term in its correct form, right? I mean, right. obviously, we, we now have all these other variants of, you know, we got technopunk and biopunk and steampunk and dieselpunk and solarpunk. It's like, you know, it's just so commodified now that... It doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just like some way for a retailer or somebody running a movement to try to make their, you know, whatever they're selling, whatever lifestyle seem relevant by just throwing the word punk on the end. Well, steampunk is an interesting example there because you're absolutely right that more than anything else, what it represents in the way that it's been interpreted, whether that means in fiction or in film, it's more anachronism than it is anti-cultural or counter-cultural it's it's the you know steampunk meaning things that we would not associate with steam-driven motors and technologies being accomplished by steam-driven motors and technologies yeah it's much more of an aesthetic movement than anything else exactly and so that's what is that well it's an interesting curiosity and it's certainly something that has its popularity and it's got its fans. And I don't mean to, you know, to denounce it or anything like that. But you're right that steampunk doesn't have anything like the feel of something like cyberpunk or certainly punk music. Yeah, I mean, it's its, its own genre, but it doesn't feel like it's rejecting anything out of modern society. Right. It's more a curiosity, more a what if. And of course, like we said, we're, we're kind of in this modern cyberpunk society. So how do you be countercultural against the thing that, that you are? <laughs> well, and that's one of the ironies here is that cyberpunk predicted or at least foretold a lot of things that are part of our current reality. You know, information is yeah. in many ways. You know, a lot of people would argue that information is the hottest commodity and is the source of all power on the planet at the moment, at least political power. Yeah, we, we haven't pulled really any any quotes out of out of um, Gibson or really talked much about his writing style, but that specifically there's one part where he's talking about the Yakuza trying to track them. Yeah. 
and he says that they're, they're settling their ghostly bulk over the city's databanks, probing for faint images of me reflected in numbered accounts, securities transactions, bills for utilities. We're an information economy. They teach you that in school. What they don't tell you is that it's impossible to move, to live, to operate at any level without leaving traces, bits, seemingly meaningless fragments of personal information, fragments that can be retrieved and amplified. And I think right there, that that's a pretty darn good description of the society we've got going for us right now. Absolutely. And the one group that is largely immune from all of that surveillance are the low techs. Why? Because they have not just physically distanced themselves from the mainstream by going up above the city, but they're the they're the crew that relies not on any kind of communication technology that we would recognize as communication technology. Instead, they do things like um, you know pluck the cables and 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 strike you know surfaces that are going to be percussive noises that they can send information. Sort of like yeah, they're they're off the grid. Yeah, that's right. And so there's a there's something there that you know the, is is that the the only way to be protected from the surveillance society is just to choose not to participate. It does seem that way. And you just use the the phrase off the grid. Yeah, I mean you've got people who are like, oh, you need to put your cell phone in a Faraday cage when you're not using it, or of course you know they're probably the same people who think the the EM radiation is gonna you know cause brain tumors or something, but. But yeah, there's there's not there's a lot of people. If you look at like the prepper society, you know, they those people are are not exactly tying themselves to the modern information economy in any way shape or form. Go on to any streaming service right now, whether that be Hulu or Netflix or any of the others and type in as a search phrase something to do with off the grid and you will find all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yep, people building places and all sorts of you know, weird remote areas. Although some of them are right. pretty high tech, right? I mean, some of them are, are like these little jewels of technology out in the middle of nowhere, and some of them are just these you know, dilapidated cabins with you know no technology to be seen. Right. Is it an information oasis, or is it just something that chooses not to participate in information at all? Those are two different strategies for going off the grid. I mean, I can tell you, I know a lot of people that are like, when they go on vacation, they're like, I'm going to go find a place where my cell phone doesn't work, <laughs> so nobody can call me. So there's definitely a movement toward that. Do you remember the Millennium Bug? Oh, yeah. Yep. The Y2K Bug? For those of you who may not have been around or may not have been paying attention to that kind of thing, so when the world, when the, when the, world, when the clock turned 2000, when the calendar turned 2000, we ran up against... A limitation in the way that things were programmed, devices, things that like you, you even toasters that had little mini computer computer chips in them, that were only pre-established with the ability to go up to the year 1999. Yeah, they had two digits for the year and not four. So of course, when it went to zero zero, it was like 1900 all over again. Right, and so the concern was, what's this going to do to the way that all this technology functions? Is it going to mess it up? Is it going to shut it down? And people were concerned that the power grids were going to fail, and the telecommunication grid was going to fail, and that society was going to fall into anarchy. Yeah, no, none of that happened. <laughs> no, but in the preparation, in the run-up to it, I knew people at the time who were building hardened bunkers in the woods, who were stockpiling 
Oh, yeah. Food and ammunition and all that good stuff. Water, yes. Yeah, and it was... Against the collapse of technology. And it just came and went. That's okay. We're still here to talk about it. (laughs) But the point that I was trying to make there is that we are so invested in technologies that we don't understand and ultimately so invested in technologies and systems that the people who are supposedly expert in those systems don't necessarily completely understand that when we come up against certain kinds of threats that are going to take those things away from us or that are going to potentially render them into so much junk, we don't know what to do. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine a modern hospital running without any technology? It's not going to be a good patient outcome for you know 95% of the people in that hospital when the lights go out. Right. We would be thinking of that as the technology that operates in parts of the world that aren't like ours and that we would think are not as nice as ours. Yeah, and you think there's, there's plenty of books out there that are like how to recreate all these technologies if, if, if everything collapsed. You know, there's, there's books that tell you how to build steam engines, how to build, you know, primitive mechanical devices, specifically so... How to perform simple surgeries. Yeah, so, so you know, if, if the lights ever do go out, at least, you know, there's, there's a reference volume you can, you know, try to rebuild. So that's one of the ironies of cyberpunk is that for all of the technology presence there, like we've said, it's it's more an expression of of style than it is of necessity. And there are people living in this society who are by choice on the fringe and who are anti-tech. So there's a counterculture within the counterculture. And those are the people that in some ways, if we're going to take something away from cyberpunk, it would be that... There are ways of resisting that kind of a society and, and the kind of society that we are in and still continue to function and to still have a life. And the uh, another thing that we hadn't talked about, well, we, we sort of talked about the, the dated, you know, sort of out-of-place elements with the lack of, of instant communication. But you know, one of the other kind of funny things is he talks about how, you know, he's got all this technical, technical augmentation and he can get, quote-unquote, hundreds of megabytes to be stored in his brain. Right. And it's like, oh, hundreds of megabytes, you know, that's uh, part of my iPhone, you know. it's it's That seemed like a lot of data at the time. Yeah, two of these podcasts is like hundreds of megabytes probably. So it's just, it's just interesting. So the question is, so we've, we've kind of talked about you know, the whole long history of cyberpunk and kind of how this is very dated and it didn't seem to last very long and it was, you know, almost dead as soon as it became a thing and that we're living in kind of a cyberpunk society now. So you might ask yourself, well, what, what, what makes this story salvageable? Why is it still worth reading if it's no longer you know, relevant? I think when it started off, cyberpunk felt edgy and different and dystopian because it wasn't our reality. And, and at the time then, it was also, like we said, a, a resistance against your dad's or your granddad's version of, of science fiction but as our society has continued, even if people would suggest that it's no longer authentic cyberpunk, there are elements of cyberpunk that are in so many genres and, and that cross over, as you were saying, at least in some way, shape or form into other, other kinds of punk. But I think cyberpunk itself, that sort of that cyber augmentation, that technology for resistance, technology for personality expression, that technology for daily living kind of thing certainly it's part of our life and so there's a there's an element of where 
we want to believe that we are capable of resistance and that we can be sort of a countercultural hero kind of thing. And I mean, so I, 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 I see people embracing the spirit of that in a variety of ways, even if the originators of cyberpunk might suggest that we're nothing but posers. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the what would you classify as the legacy of cyberpunk. That's a good question. I mean, I think some people would probably focus cinematically, especially on the idea of the anti-hero. We've had a lot of characters now at this point in literature, in whether it's science fiction or otherwise, and in film, who operate on the fringes of society and who people rely on to get things done but not necessarily because of some internal drive to serve good over evil or something like that. In fact, I mean, I suppose if you look at something like cyberpunk, nobody's good and nobody's evil. There is just me and the other. There's us against them. We live in a time that people who research such things tell us new generations for the first time in the history of the United States, for example, feel like they are not as well off as their parents or their grandparents and that they face a future that is more uncertain and more bleak than what past generations have faced. They feel not necessarily oppressed, but downtrodden as a result of their daily lives. And people feel kind of powerless when it comes to participating in global anything as far as that goes, whether it's economics, politics, whatever the case may be. It feels like, at least people feel like, it's an us against them kind of thing. And and the people around them, the people that are close to them, the people that are like them are the ones that they can count on, not the government, not the military, not their employer. You know, it's a it's a society that has some dystopian feel to it in a lot of ways. And I don't mean to get all like dark and, and dystopian about our current society or anything like that, but you got to at least admit that there's some people who are feeling the struggle and who are feeling like they're not the ones in charge and they're not the ones who are choosing the most important elements of their future. So in a time like that, I get it why so many, uh, so many stories and so many films keep coming back to some of this idea of cyberpunk because in cyberpunk you've got characters who yeah they are not the ones who have all the power they're not the ones who are in control they're not the ones with all the money but they manage and they resist and that call to resistance that call to you know say fuck you to the man you know that's very much cyberpunk and i think that attitude is something that is going to continue to evolve and is going to continue to hold on in our society until people feel like there's some sort of a sense of equality. You know, when there's an element of, of society that clearly feels like they're staring into the abyss, cyberpunk leaves you with the feeling that resistance is possible. So that, I guess, will teach me to ask a simple question. But then again, Bill, that's why you've got the PhD and I don't. But uh, revolutionary tendencies aside, we probably should go ahead and run this story through our, our wonderful new rating system that we introduced in the last episode. Right. So is it a whoa? Is it a hmm? Or is it a what the fuck? Yeah, it's a, this is kind of an odd one for me because it's 
it's not really any of them to me. It, uh, as we discussed in the story, it's much more of a exposition of the environment and just kind of a way of describing the cyberpunk concept. So to me, it's almost a little bit of what the fuck, especially with some of the weird elements of the weird trampoline thing with the, that last scene. But I'm not really sure how I would describe this one. I suppose in some way I'd look at it like th- this is one where we might need a Venn diagram to see where they overlap because, you know, the, the cyberpunk thing in general brings a little bit of a woe factor to it. And he's clearly trying to make us think about the implications of all of this kind of technology and and the political socioeconomic stuff that's going on. But then, like you said, you know, there's that element of what can we come up with next that's going to be really cool and weird Hey, let's come up with a guy who has a thumb that opens up and has a monofilament that'll whip through people's bodies. Yeah, there's like a whole bunch of little woes and hmms and what the fuck, like we've woven in throughout the entire story. It's a bit of a conglomerate of all three. I would agree. So... So looking ahead to, to some of the next stories we're going to cover, you know, in the last two, we've, we've talked about you know, humans transforming themselves you know, into aliens. And this one, we've kind of talked about you know, humans cybernetically enhancing themselves, although in no way do they actually become alien. They're, they're all still human at the core. The next story we're going to cover, called Mimsy Were the Bora Groves by Henry Kuttner, kind of takes us in another direction, which is what if humans become the aliens? And with that, stay tuned for another episode of TBD. TBD.